Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, we spoke to the author of a new work on serial killers, learned about a Bollywood connection to Chicago's burgeoning film industry, and spoke to an expert on Chicago's finances about our collective future. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for October 27th, 2017. I-94 spoke with Tori Telfer, author of Lady Killers, Dangerous Women Throughout History. Telfer spoke about her choice of killers, how she herself is actually a coward, and the challenges facing freelance writers posed by late-stage capitalism. Telfer and the boys did the show before a live audience at Pilsen Community Books. I-94 airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Tonight, we are joined by the author of this little book right here. It is called Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History. It is from Harper Perennial. Please, please give a very warm Pills and Community Books welcome to Tori Telfer. <laughs> All right, let the roasting begin. <laughs> Tori, first of all, I'd like to start off by asking you, what made you want to write a book about serial killers in the first place, and then female serial killers after that? Well, male serial killers were never really a question for me. Um, I am actually, ironically, a very cowardly person. I'm very scared of a lot of things. Um, My entire family is shocked that I've written a book about serial killers at all. Um, But I did always have sort of a yen for weird historical figures. Like, I've said this before on the internet, so sorry if I'm repeating myself, but I loved Nero, the Roman emperor, who was just completely off his rocker. So um, when it came time, I was about, I guess, 25 or 26 and I saw that this website The All was looking for uh, historical columns and I racked my brain and just kind of thought that female serial killers would be fun I found out about Ursabet Bathory um, who is a real bad one and that's how it started nothing more magical than that several of the of the women profiled in your book go back three four centuries even even more um there had to be a lot of sources and probably a lot of conflicting sources. How did you, um, how did you not go crazy? <laughs> and how did you sort them out? Yeah. Sort out the sources? Yeah. Um, one by one, chapter by chapter. I, I really like dealing with old sources. It feels very, you know, detective-y. And I feel like, you know, a primary source, you just can, like, have a sigh of relief. Did you have like, to go to special libraries? Or you know, it? I wish I could... A little bit, but a lot is online now where you can get a library to send you a scan. So I was spoiled. You know I'm a librarian, right? Yes. (laughs) I I owe you and your people (laughs) so much. I'm just teasing. (laughs) Well, you know, talking about sources, there was uh, the first mention of the bloodbaths that were pinned on her came from a 1729 book called Tragica Historia that was written by a Jesuit scholar after he discovered the Bathory trial transcripts, and it's believed that he made it up, correct? Yeah, yeah, there's no, the bloodbath rumor is really popular. I mean, it's a good story. It um, makes her sound a little vampiric. But from the the confessions from the servants that I was mentioning earlier, um, no one mentions a bloodbath, and they even mention that she spilled so much blood during torture that she would have to change her shirt. Gross. So, which shows that she didn't care. She wasn't collecting the blood, you know. She was uh, splattering it. Splattering it. Yeah. So I don't know why this Jesuit scholar came up with that story. That's Jesuits the weirdest. Have seen some 
Next. Maybe because she was Protestant. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. Could it have been, though, that when she became kind of popularized again, there was a wave of kind of contemporary horror fiction? Because she was kind of rediscovered during the age of uh, Mary Wollenscraft and, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein, Bram Stoker, and stuff like that. And that would have been a very uh, irresistible detail, Absolutely. in a sense, to, to put in there. Yes. So. And I think that gets back to the point. I'd love to know a little more about what sources you went to because some of the details in this stuff are irresistible. So what, mm-hmm. just take us through a little bit of what primary sources you were using for some of this stuff. Was it old newspapers? Was it you know old books? I mean, there, I don't think there were any first-person accounts unless, you know, um, we're talking about no. some of the more contemporary people in your book. Yeah. And, um, are you talking about sources for the whole book? Yeah, or just, just about, in general, yeah. Um, a lot of old newspapers, um, you know, sort of from the mid-1800s on, I was able to find, you know, those primary sources. Um, for a couple of these women, there was already a book written about them, like for the um, Angel Makers, um, which maybe we'll get to later. Uh, There's another Hungarian group of serial killers, and a Scot- like an academic had already written a book in English, but he was Hungarian, about them. So that was sort of, he'd used the primary sources, which I then gleaned from. Um, so it really varied per killer because the times, you know, when they killed were so different. The oldest one in the book is from the 1300s, Alice Kiteller. And I was able to find a source. So there's a source in Latin about the man who persecuted her. And I was able to find a sor- a more contemporary source, a more modern source that referenced this source in Latin. So I can't read Latin, but... That was in so, Ireland, right? In Ireland, yeah. yeah. So I, sometimes I kind of was able to get close to these like really ancient primary sources, um, but language was often a barrier. Well, that brings up a good point about how you decided to choose which killers to begin with. You, you mentioned in the, in, the, um, in the afterward that you left out most modern Yes, I stopped in the 1950s, Okay, which was my agent's idea, but it was something that once she said, I was like, oh, that's that's it. That is what I want to do. Because at first I didn't really want to write the book, actually, because I didn't want to deal with like um, Myra Hindley and like some of these more crimes just seem to get more gruesome as you come closer to our present day. I don't know if it's because we have worse weapons, but there are some real nasty ones that I didn't want to write about. Who were they? Um, so the Myra, the Moore's murderess. Moore's murder, Yorkshire Moore's, yeah. I was actually going to ask She's about her. She's horrible. Yorkshire murders. I'm a coward. Well, I'll tell you why I kept it vintage. It's okay. sort of an like aesthetic choice, as I say in the intro. Um, and I didn't want to, I didn't want anyone to be alive that was, you know, intimately connected to the victims or the murderers. And I wanted it to be something that we could be fascinated by and pour over without feeling totally sad and gross about the present day even Eileen who 90s is no longer that's not really modern anymore but even Eileen Wernos um just brings up questions that are really important but really depressing and feel very relevant which is not to say that these women don't but the comparison I always use is like Jack the Ripper no one feels that weird about being fascinated by Jack the Ripper it's just so shrouded in history you can kind of be spooked out and be creeped out and like almost have a little fun with it while still be totally fascinated and, and still think it's terrible and gruesome. Um, you can't do that with who's a modern male. You, you wrote that you, um, you cried twice. I did. Yeah. (laughs) Since writing that I've cried four times. Leads me to a question that I've been wanting to ask you, you know, most of this stuff originally started out, um, in kind of late stage digital production, you know, you mean you were writing for the All and Jezebel and oh, all right. that, and I wondered if you know when your editors approached you about that, 
was it because this stuff had kind of did they did they talk to you about why they wanted it in the first place? Was it something they thought was something they were trying to throw on the wall and stick, or was it you had an editor that re- remembered? You know, well, back in the nineties, you know, we talked about John Wayne Gacy and Richard Speck mm-hmm. all all the time. Was that something that was ever brought up with you? My editor was very young. I think I think she might have been younger than me, so I don't think she was a you know like a, reading the zines and everything. Um, that's a good question. I don't really know what the answer is. I know that it seemed like since I started writing the columns, you know, things like Making a Murderer and Serial and My Favorite Murder, those have come out more recently. So I don't know if, I don't think the um, column was assigned to me because the Renaissance had really happened yet. And I know I'm only, I'm only talking about a span of like four years, but it really does feel like it's happened in the past two, maybe, all this new true crime stuff. There's um, a big boom in podcasts. Podcasts. Sword in the Scale, Making a Murder, and some of the other ones you mentioned. Last podcast on the left. So you're responsible for this with these columns, so right? I am a trendsetter of murder. <laughs> no, I'm not. How, how were these columns initially received when you, when you published them? Uh, they were shockingly received really well. Um, I read the comments, which you're never supposed to do, but <laughs> it was, so it wasn't, I pitched it to the all, but they put it on their sister site, The Hairpin, which is, you know, mostly um, women read it. And so I felt safe reading the comments. And I don't know, people just, I mean, people love true crime. Women love true crime. I mean, most true crime fans, I, I believe, are women. And it really seemed to resonate with people. People were, um, we were having discussions that weren't mean no one was telling me to die you know even if people were correcting me like I got these Hungarian scholars <laughs> they came out of the woodwork and were like well some of the things you're saying about Bathory we disagree with but they were polite and nice and no death threats involved so it's nice so did you have I felt other, happy did you have death threats in your other columns well I would never read the comments on any other columns okay, so I don't okay. know but I'm maybe okay. the worst <laughs> yeah what were you writing about just curiosity wasn't uh, you mean other columns? Yeah, the other columns. Like, what would be... Well, I would do, like, a one-off piece for Vice, and then I would, like, with one ha- one eye half open, look at the comments, and I would see that yeah. someone was saying something in all caps, and I was like, I don't want to know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> the one that, that cut, the mo- cut the sharpest was someone just said my writing was mediocre. And I was like, somehow that was, like, the worst. <laughs> like, that hurt so much more than, like, you suck, go die. Yeah. It well, was it's very just, personal. Yeah, yeah and, like... It's not bad, just mediocre. Mediocre is worse than bad, I think. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. Bad at Sports spoke with Brian Hagelke, the publisher of New City and local film producer behind the coming-of-age Muslim melodrama Signature Move. Hagelke talked about the making of the film, why it takes a hard detour into the world of luchador wrestling, and how he lucked into getting one of Bollywood's biggest stars. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Most people know Brian Hay. I guess as opposed to Brian A, I guess, over here, uh, from your role as New City as editor and publisher. But New City is um, kind of doing interesting things. You've released a feature film. Uh, you have sister publications internationally. Uh, and most relevant to get started is is your current, like, why is New City making a film? What is it? Where can we see it? Sure. So 
Do you I have mean, to answer it in that order? No. Right? In that order? Mm, okay. No. I would say let's go with what is it and then why is it? Okay. okay. So the movie is called Signature Move. It uh, is uh, it was a you know a, a project that was done entirely in Chicago with two asterisks that I can explain later if okay. you want to. <laughs> I'll t- I'm taking it out. <laughs> and um, the uh, it's a story of a of two women who meet and fall in love. And uh, one is a Pakistani woman who's sort of from the Devon neighborhood, living with her mother who is recently widowed and is still closeted to her mother. And then um, the other woman is a Mexican woman who lives in the uh, little village neighborhood, not with her mother, She's, uh, but her, she's very close to her mother. So it's a story about these two women and their relationship, but also very much about their relationships with their mothers. And then there's wrestling so and not not wwe wrestling like luchador wrestling. yeah it's a mix it's like a little bit it's you know it's kind of it's it's a world of wrestling that doesn't really fully exist but yeah it's um the female wrestling world yes mm. well it does that that world does exist but not in this sort of uh way we've depicted it completely but we did have real professional wrestlers involved billy corgan from the smashing pumpkins as you may know, is a kind of a wrestling fanatic now. I did not know. Oh, yeah. Uh, I did not know that is the first piece of tea for later yeah. in the show. <laughs> yeah, so he helped us get the wrestlers. And uh, so there is real wrestling. I'm not, but it's like, you know, there's a little bit of fantasy involved in the sense that we kind of fused both the WWE style wrestling, but done at a more of an underground level. Uh, which is the way it happens in Chicago. You know, there's all this like wrestling. I, I didn't know anything about this. I'm, I grew up, I'm a little bit too old for that whole like wave of Hulk Hogan and all that stuff. And so it was like never in my, you know, wheelhouse at all. Um, I am still not a really a fan of it. You know, it's not like I'm going to go see some wrestling at any point in time, but I've learned a lot by making the film. And, um, you know, what, what it was, the, the, the way it comes into the story is the Zanab, who is the Pakistani woman who is our main character um, is a lawyer, an immigration lawyer mostly, but she also has this woman who comes in who wants to need, needs legal work, but can't pay her in cash. So she pays her, and she's a former, you know, like WWE style wrestler. Right. Pays her by re- with wrestling lessons. Okay. Then Good when partner. she meets Alma, the other woman, right. Alma's mother had been a luchadora in Mexico, so that they kind of that makes this connection, and then that drives kind of the plot, you know, forward. So that there's you know, a fair bit of wrestling and a culminating wrestling event, as you would expect. So it's kind of a sports movie, too, you know. Sports movie. So it uh, premiered at South By. You mm-hmm. guys had a big festival run. Uh, and if people are interested, they can – you're still screening in Chicago this weekend. Yeah, we're actually reopening. We haven't even hardly announced it, so it's news for you. Um, we are being brought back to play at Webster Place in Lincoln Park, which is really cool because it's like a big national chain right. cinema. You know, and uh, we are opening also at Wilmette Theater, which is a small kind of art house film uh, in the North Shore. So um, we are going to be announcing that later today. But uh, the way this business works, everything gets done on Mondays, like late in the day. And then, you know, so we've just been kind of finalizing everything. So let's talk about again how why this film how's New City connected with this film? Who directed? Because you clearly don't love wrestling, so there must be someone along the chain. Who's who a felt, fan. Yeah, who's a fan. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, you know, I would say the main kind of creative force behind the film is Fazia Mirza, and uh, who's a, uh, uh, you know, an actor, an activist, a performer, you know, writer, everything, kind of a, you know, multi-hyphenate in Chicago. And uh, it's based on her life. It's not, it's not based on it. It's inspired by her life. Okay. And, uh, 
you know, she did have a romantic relationship with a Mexican-American woman in Chicago over one summer, and they're no longer a partner, you know, no longer together. But Who was a luchador? No. So that's the, the, see, that's the, that's the fiction of the film. <laughs> so the whole, like, the way wrestling, way, the way she brought wrestling into it, she was on kind of a show like this, some sort of talk show, I think at the hideout or something that was being done there. Right. And this former WD, WD pro wrestler named Lisa Marie Verone, who lived in Chicago, for, I don't know if she still does, but she was living in Chicago at the time, was on the show as well. And she was really, um, you know, an, an impressive woman to Fazia. And she said, you know, these, these, where are these stories? You know, who, who are, this is before Glow, you know, was happening on, right. on Netflix and everything. So it was like, this is this a cool thing. And so somehow she wove it all together. So that's the fiction. Nobody actually involved in the film knew anything about wrestling going into it other than what they kind of created in the story. But we learned. There's a lot, you know, which we could talk about if you want. There's, we, you know, it's a crash course in, in, in wrestling culture for us. I was going to say maybe we need to do like a live on-air crash course where Brian kind of like, Brian H right. <laughs> uh, puts Brian A in some sort of like hold. With, with and a crazy I can name, announce it, Some yeah. sort of crazy named hold. Um, so was Fazia so, the writer, yeah. the director? Fazia wrote Fazia. it. She co-wrote yeah. it with uh, Lisa Donato. Okay. And um, then she was uh, one of the producers with us. So there was three of us that produced it. And then she was uh, the star. Okay. So, she, you know, that's I say, very, very intricately involved. She's in Mumbai right now where okay. the film – this film is very – still like insanely active on in festivals. It's playing – she just published a list. I saw quite a lot of laurels. Yeah. Associated. Yeah, with the we're film. over a hundred festival bookings. Wow, right now. it's going well into next year. It's it's like, you know, the next we're in Finland, we're in uh, Latin America, we're in. I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, I, I I literally have given up on trying to keep up with where it's going internationally because that's of course I never get invited. That you know the producers. I was going to say who yeah. gets to go to like. Well, Finland that's why I. That's <laughs> one of the reasons I'm here today because Fazia is in India and Jennifer Reeder, our director, is on a plane to Germany with the film today so wow fan out it's a team sport yeah well it, i guess wrestling is can, not a it, team sport well, i guess those are tag yeah, kind of like a but like a, a team broader, of people behind you yeah yeah whatever you like fazia is the wrestler i don't know this is not a, this is not a fruitful metaphor right. for us so we, we may be going we may be wrestling. going down a dangerous path <laughs> here yeah. Yeah, show, showing our ignorance so then how did this project come to be right you she's got the script she's got this concept how does new city get involved how does jennifer reader get involved yeah who called up brian and was like hey so it's me fazia so what happened was um like th- three or four years ago um you know, so we've been doing this, Jan, my wife and I, we are the founders and we run New City together and we've been doing this now for, you know, 30 years. And, uh, you, you know, you get to a certain age and you're like, all right, I got to start figuring out what I want to do with my life. You know, I'm going to do some things, right? <laughs> and so we started doing, that's why we launched. I thought that's what you were doing with your life. Yeah, you know, but I'm just, we, <laughs> we started New City when we were in our early 20s, kind of on a whim. We never thought we'd be doing this 30 years. You know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. something we just did and, and you just started doing it. And we're like... So we started doing things like Brazil and this. And, and uh, you know, so I had always, and Jan as well, we'd always, you know, we could have started, like New City could have been a movie production company if the digital thing had already happened back then, if it was, you know, more accessible. Like mo- making movies in the 80s, you know, that wasn't something that you just, e- you know, the people that made it like independent, like art, were like, you know, people using like low-fi video cameras and there was no commercial possibility for it. That wasn't... It just wasn't a, an option. So, but if it had been, we might have done that because right. we literally chose to do City sort of on a whim. You know, it was it w- wasn't like a 
a strategic plan or anything. We just did it. It evolved. It became this. So we just I came up with this idea and convinced Jan that we could do this, is that for our 30th anniversary, we would uh, produce a feature film that would be entirely done in Chicago soup to nuts, from writers to stars to post-production. You know, everything we could do in Chicago would be done in Chicago. With two asterisks. Well, those come in later. Oh, we're not talking about that. No, we can. I can explain what they were. There were two things that... So it we fulfilled the promise, in essence, of that. The two things where we didn't was when we were casting the film, all of the actors, who are almost 100% women, which is a unique thing with this film. There's one speaking male role, and it's a, you know, it's a fairly small role. He's like the bartender. Yes. Yeah, and he's very cool. Yeah. You know, he's a guy... He was on The Voice, so you know, it's like a little bonus for us. But uh, the... Um, the uh, the entire cast is all kind of out of the Chicago theater community, with one exception, and it is the the woman who plays uh, Fazia's character's mother. Her, and uh, you know the the reason that happened is we were you know talking about casting, and Fazia is like, look, I'm South Asian and I'm an actor in Chicago, so I know all the South Asian actors, and there's nobody that can play this role here, so we have to go outside of Chicago. So we said, well, instead of going to like L.A. or New York, where there also isn't that many, right? What about Bollywood? You know, what about looking at this you know, robust cinema culture in, uh, in India who is going to have a lot of women of that age who speak Urdu and have right. that gravitas. And then that, so Fazia, of course, the only one who knew anything about Bollywood is Fazia because you know, she grew up in that culture with her mother especially, uh, watching it, not as a participant. <laughs> um, and she said, you know, she immediately said, our dream for this would be Shabana Azmi. Shabana Azmi is an amazing woman. I did an interview with her in the current issue of New City. She is, um, her father was a very famous poet. They were communists in the 1930s and 40s, so she grew up, you know, in this sort of like super famous dad, but living in a commune because all their money went back to the Communist Party. She became an actor. Um, I can never pronounce his name, but she acted early in a film with Satija Ray. Um, and I'm sure I butchered that. It's okay. You're educating us. And we'll get call in now if yeah. you have an opinion about Brian's pronunciation. <laughs> exactly. um, don't but, worry, we don't have. But a real you know, problem. he called her. You know, the best act, and she went on to do. So she was sort of this leader of like the uh, the avant garde Indian cinema, and but she also then moved over into Bollywood, and she she's won. We call her the we our shorthand is she's the Meryl Streep of India because she's won more Best Actor awards in their kind of equivalent of the Academy Awards than any other actor in history. So she's huge. Well, that's a score. That's yeah. A score. But there's two yeah. other cool things about her. One is that she's this amazing leader on women's issues, which are, you know, arguably worse in India than they are even in the United States, and on poverty issues, which are obviously very profound in India. She's really turned her life, her work, her, you know, her she practices her art and channels her activity into activism. She was an, a member of parliament there. She was a UN goodwill ambassador. She's a real, like, global leader. You know, of course, nobody in the United States, because we don't pay attention to anybody who's not American uh, or doesn't speak English. Well, she does speak very good English. I was going to say, it seems speaks, like in the film no, she, she could speak English pretty well. She speaks that gorgeous sort of British, you know, inflected Indian English. But um, the other thing that's really amazing about her, and that really, I think, was what for Fazia was the ultimate connection, is she starred in this movie called Fire that was made... It was an Indian-Canadian produ- production 20, approximately 20 years ago. And Fire was the first time any kind of mainstream Indian film had tackled LGBT issues. 
and she had played a woman who falls in love with another woman. It was a huge controversy. It, you know, like people burned theaters in India. They were, it went to parliament as a possible, possibly being banned. It was, you know, it was a, it was a seminal film, especially in that culture in India. This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump's team attacks a war widow. Is Niger Trump's Benzaghi? Trump apparently chiseled a grieving father. Neo-Nazis attack peaceful protesters again. Republicans race to cut taxes. And four Republicans say enough is enough. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 273, October 19th. The White House Chief of Staff attacked a selfish Congresswoman who said Trump made a war widow cry. General John Kelly said he was brokenhearted by the Democrats' criticism of the lawmaker's condolence call to Sergeant LaDavid Johnson's wife. The row began after Johnson's mother said Trump disrespected her family during a call with the man's widow by saying the soldier, quote, knew what he signed up for. Trump has denied he said those words. In a related story, Trump apparently offered a grieving military father $25,000 during a phone call and said he would establish an online fundraiser for the family. That check was never sent. I opened up a letter and read it, and I was hoping to see a check in there, to be honest, the father of the fallen service member said. A White House spokesperson said the check has been sent, adding, quote, it's disgusting that the media is taking something that should be recognized as a generous and sincere gesture made privately by the president and using it to advance the media's biased agenda. In fact, the check was not sent until the story was broken by the Washington Post. And thousands of protesters marched on the University of Florida to drown out a speech by a white nationalist. The event with neo-Nazi Richard Spencer prompted the governor to declare a state of emergency. Hundreds of police also flooded the Gainesville campus. Spencer struggled to speak over the crowd of protesters who jeered and chanted, go home. The speech came two months after a far-right rally in Virginia left an anti-racism protester dead. And a Maryland federal judge blocked Trump's latest travel ban attempt, citing Trump's tweets as evidence that the policy carries the same intent as his Muslim ban proposal. The ruling was the second against Trump's third attempt to ban Muslims from entering the USA. Democrats asked the chairman of the House Oversight Committee to subpoena the White House for documents related to Michael Flynn. Their letter read, quote, the White House has been openly defying this committee's bipartisan request for documents regarding General Flynn for months without any assertion of privilege. And Trump signed an executive order that would allow the Air Force to recall 1,000 retired pilots in order to address what the Pentagon says is a pilot shortage. The order amends a post-9-11 emergency declaration that allows the Air Force to recall pilots from retirement. The Air Force is currently short approximately 1,500 pilots. Day 274, October 20th, 2017. Trump today suggested the Democratic Party, the FBI, or the Kremlin paid for the Steele dossier that alleges ties between him and the Russian government. Trump tweeted, quote, workers of firm involved with the discredited and fake dossier take the fifth. Who paid for it, Russia, the FBI, or the Dems, or all? Two officials from Fusion GPS, which compiled the Steele dossier, have refused to answer questions. And three men have been charged with attempted homicide after they argued with a group of people protesting a white nationalist speech and fired a shot at them. The attack came after thousands protested the speech by Richard Spencer at the University of Florida. Governor Rick Scott had declared a state of emergency ahead of that rally, the protests, until the shooting had been peaceful. John McCain and two Democratic senators have introduced a bill requiring Facebook, Google, and other internet companies to disclose who is purchasing political ads to the election commission. The tech industry has protested previous efforts to do so, saying the ads on their platforms were, quote, too small to fit the required disclaimers. And Trump gave himself a 10 out of 10 for his response to Puerto Rico, which he called worse than Katrina. In fact, 30% of the island doesn't have access to drinking water and 80% there are still without power. Prior to the storm, 96% of homes in Puerto Rico had electricity and 100% had access to clean water. 
and the EPA blocked three agency scientists from discussing climate change at a conference. The scientists contributed substantial material to a 400-page report about how climate change is affecting fish in and around the Narragansett Bay estuary. The EPA also funded that report. And Scott Pruitt's security details adding a dozen more agents as the number of threats against the EPA head has increased by four to five times. Pruitt has also purchased a secure soundproof communications booth for his office at a cost of nearly $25,000, although similar rooms already exist at the EPA. Congress has said the costs are, quote, a potential waste or abuse of taxpayer dollars and that taxpayer funds are being misused by the EPA. Day 275, October 21st. The shadow attack in Niger has become a major political scandal in the wake of Trump's self-inflicted wounds after he criticized a congressman and a war widow. The FBI has now joined the investigation into the ambush that left four Green Berets dead after the 12-member team was attacked by 50 ISIS fighters in Niger two weeks ago. A senior congressional aide told the Washington Post the ambush was a massive intelligence failure. On top of being outmanned and outgunned, the troops were relying on the French military for air support, but the French did not have permission to drop bombs. Private contractors used helicopters to evacuate the injured and dead, but Army Sergeant Le David Johnson was somehow left behind. His remains were found almost two days later, about a mile from where the fighting took place. Trump also did not mention the incident for more than two weeks. Some are now asking if this is Trump's Benzaghi moment. Trump called the Congresswoman Frederica Wilson wacky and said she told a total lie about his call to the mother of a soldier killed in that incident. The fake news is going crazy with wacky Congresswoman Wilson who was secretly on a very personal call and gave a total lie on content. In fact, Frederica Wilson correctly said Trump told the widow her husband, quote, knew what he signed up for in a condolence call. In addition, Wilson said that John Kelly lied about her statements in 2015, proven on videotape, and that the White House is currently full of white supremacists. Republicans could approve a tax package by early 2018, with the Senate passing a budget blueprint last night that would protect a $1.5 trillion tax cut from a Democratic filibuster. The resolution now goes to the House, which could take it up as soon as next week. The Senate plan would cut trillions from social services to give the wealthy a massive tax break, but no concrete legislation as yet exists. Day 276, October 22nd. A federal judge refused to avoid Joe Arapaio's conviction despite Trump's pardon of him. U.S. District Judge Susan Ritchie Bolton said Trump's pardon, quote, does not revise the historical facts of his case and she will not vacate her ruling. Arapaio had been found guilty of criminal contempt of a federal court order for his failure to stop detaining individuals on the basis of their suspected immigration status. And the EPA has removed climate change references from its websites that local governments use to address climate change, curb emissions, and devise strategies for adapting to weather extremes. Day 277, October 23rd. Maisha Johnson, the widow of the soldier killed earlier this month in Niger, said Trump's call made me cry even worse. The president said that he knew what he signed up for, but it hurts anyways, and I was, it made me cry because I was very angry at the tone of his voice and how he said it. He couldn't remember my husband's name. I heard him stumbling on trying to remember my husband's name, and that's what hurt me the most, because if my husband is out there fighting for our country and he risks his life for our country, why can't you remember his name? Johnson also said that Congresswoman Frederica Wilson's remarks on the call were 100% correct. Why would we fabricate something like that, said the widow. Six people heard the call on a speakerphone. And the Trump administration has been given until October 31st to find a sponsor for a 17-year-old migrant seeking an abortion who's being held in federal detention. The Office of Refugee Resettlement, headed by a lifelong anti-abortion activist, is blocking her from getting one. The court has ruled she must be allowed to have an abortion. The ACLU is suing today to get that timetable moved up. 
Politico reports that Democratic candidates are reporting historic early fundraising totals, raising the prospect that 2018 could feature the widest House battlefield in a generation. At least 162 Democratic candidates in 82 GOP-held districts have raised over $100,000 so far this year. That's about four times as many candidates as House Democrats had at this point before the 2016 or 2014 elections, and it's more than twice as many as Republicans had running at this point eight years ago when they captured the House. And the USA is putting its nuclear bombers on 24-hour alert today. The move thought to be related to the North Korean standoff has not occurred since 1991 and the end of the Cold War. Betsy DeVos has rescinded 72 guidelines that protect the rights of disabled students under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and the Rehabilitation Act. DeVos called the policies outdated, unnecessary, or ineffective. During her confirmation hearing in January, DeVos said she was confused about the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act when asked whether she supported it. And Trump dismissed House Republicans' plans to limit 401k contributions. The plans would have capped pre-tax 401k contributions at about $2,400 annually. There will be no change to your 401k, Trump tweeted. This has always been a great and popular middle-class tax break that works, and it stays. Day 278, October 24th. Jeff Flake, Arizona Republican, said he would not seek re-election in 2018, declaring on the Senate floor that he will no longer be complicit or silent in the face of Trump's reckless, outrageous, and undignified behavior. Flake delivered an extraordinary 17-minute speech, which he challenged not only the president, but also his party's leadership, asking why Republicans were complicit with the debasing of the nation. Flake's announcement deepened the Republican schism, with him joining John McCain, former President George W. Bush, and Senator Bob Corker in attacking Trump publicly this week. And Trump and Corker continue to feud as the GOP struggle to find consensus on a tax cut. Corker said Trump should step aside from tax reform, stop kneecapping your Secretary of State, and leave it to the professionals for a while and see if we can do something that's constructive for our country. Trump replied on Twitter, calling Corker a lightweight in charge he couldn't, quote, get elected dog catcher in Tennessee. Corker replied also on Twitter, quote, same untruths from an utterly untruthful president. Hashtag alert the daycare staff. Corker later said in a CNN interview he would convene hearings to examine the ways Trump purposely has been breaking down relationships around the world. He also called Trump a serial liar and refused to say if he trusted him with the nuclear codes. The Washington Post reported that the Clinton campaign and the DNC helped fund research that resulted in the Trump dossier. A lawyer representing the Clinton campaign and the DNC retained Fusion GPS in April 2016 to conduct the research. Prior to that, Fusion GPS's research into Trump was funded by a still unknown Republican client during the Republican primary. And Trump's voter fraud commission has left Democratic members in the dark about what it's doing. Two of the commission's four Democrats have asked for basic information such as when the panel might meet again, what kind of research is being conducted, and when it might send a report to Trump. A Montana utility company linked to the Trump administration somehow won a $300 million contract to repair Puerto Rico's electrical infrastructure. The private equity firm that finances Whitefish Energy was founded by Joe Colonetta, who contributed $20,000 to the Trump Victory Pact during the general election. The company, until last week, had only two full-time employees. Whitefish Energy is also located in the hometown of Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke, who is friends with Whitefish CEO Andy Tekmanski. And the Republican-led Senate last night narrowly voted to repeal a banking rule that would let consumers band together to sue their bank or credit card company to resolve financial disputes. Vice President Mike Pence cast the final vote to break a 50-50 tie. The banking industry had been lobbying hard to roll back that regulation from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The bureau had moved to ban most types of mandatory arbitration clauses. And Trump signed an executive order resuming the admission of refugees to the United States under tighter security screening. But administration officials say they will still subject 11 unidentified countries to another 90-day review for potential threats. And Amera's poll finds that just 42% of all voters approve of the job Trump is doing. 
The same number believes he will be remembered as the worst president in history. These are the Trump Diaries. Tech Scene Chicago spoke with Dante Hamilton, a prominent local WordPress expert and blogger, about his experiences with underprivileged kids on our city's south and west sides. Hamilton spoke about his students' goals and fears and how blogging can be a dangerous undertaking for some in our community. Tech Scene with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday at 1. Can you share with our listeners the story you told me about kids who blog in, in yeah. relation to this? Right. So it was actually these same kids. And I started, and it's still loosely being founded, a blog awards. And it never really got off the ground. But I was able to actually have an actual awards ceremony. Mm-hmm. And it was involving these youth. Mm-hmm. So the travel bloggers um, were going to be attending an event at Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And it was through an associate of mine at the time. And and he arranged for this other group of youth that was at the Microsoft Center downtown at the Aon building to vote on the travel bloggers' blogs during their lunch because it was some event that uh, Microsoft was having for this other group of kids. Mm-hmm. And I happened to uh, ask them, I said, well, do you think we can maybe have some kids vote on the blogs? And I had a little form made up. It was a voting form. And while they were eating pizza, taking a break at their uh, excursion, I, never, I don't even remember what it was. I, I got up and I said, hey, listen, there's, there's four kids here, you know, look just like you. Uh, here are their blogs. I put it up on the screen. And I said, we want you guys to take a look at each one of the blogs. They're going to come up and tell their story about their blog. And we want you to vote. There's a piece of paper. Write which one you think is going to be the number one blog. And so that is how I was able to get the blog awards off. And it was involving high school students. Mm-hmm. And I was so, I, that was probably my proudest moment at that moment, you know, mm-hmm. working on that project was that the fact that I was able to award them something. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then what happened? Well, of course, I don't think the kids really thought that that was any big deal being high school students. I think they were like, well, how am I going to get paid with this? You know, it's mm-hmm. just an award. So uh, it didn't, I don't think it was significant to them mm-hmm. um, in, in any kind of way. I think that it was a great experience with the Microsoft and being exposed to uh, Microsoft technology and all of the stuff that was happening down there. But the Blog Awards was clearly not the big deal for them that day. It was other stuff happening. And so, so some of the kids were scared of getting awards. Um, is that right? Well, I, I, so some of the kids I found out from talking to them, um, I, I would ask them, I'd say, well, okay, are you guys promoting your blog? Are you telling people about the fact that you have a blog? Are you sharing this with your family, your friends, you know, people at school and stuff like that? And lo and behold, I found out that, um, you know, one of the people, uh, one of the women specifically told me, well, it could be kind of dangerous if people found out that I had a blog. So I can't Mm -hmm. share this information with anybody. Mm -hmm. And I won't get into all the personal details, but I found out that, um, you know, it's probably not a good idea for them to go out saying, uh, I have a blog, here it is online, this is what I'm doing with it, I'm going to all of these different places and stuff like that. And for reasons I won't discuss on the air, it just, it didn't make, it, it didn't make sense to me at first when they told me, but it became um, pretty much like a, a dangerous type of thing, mm-hmm. you know, and it, the way that it was explained to me, and I, I completely understood that. I never would have thought that something like that would be of an issue, mm-hmm. but it was, and so... I became less um, 
aggressive with them in terms of telling them to promote their blog. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very just satisfied with the fact that they were going out every day, making uh, several blog posts, getting video, uploading pictures. They learned the technology in less than two weeks. They had aced it. Mm-hmm. And this was a six-week program. So it's kind of boring for the mm-hmm. next four weeks for them because it, they had already mastered everything so quickly. And I was like, well, why don't you guys promote this? You know, I tried to get the mayor involved. And when they pulled me to the side and told me what they told me, I was like, wait a minute, I, I can't really promote these guys. That's why I never tell people about mm-hmm. that story. I never tell them what the blogs are, who the people are, what schools they were at or anything. Yeah. yeah. Well, Just to protect them. To protect them in, in right. the schools. And so, so you know, many, and the reason why I wanted to go into this is because, you know, not, not everybody might think about this, but there are many different neighborhoods in Chicago with many different parameters and circumstances. And some kids in those neighborhoods and some schools may be in danger when they try to do something good. Just because they put themselves out there, it may not be safe for them. Yes. You know, and, and, and that's, that's a, you know, something I had never really thought of. And, and it's just, I think it's just good to, to contemplate that, you know. And, and I wanted to ask you, you know, this experience, how does this make you feel about kids in school today and, and our commitment to them? Well, I think our commitment is uh, genuine. I, I, I had a really genuine commitment. I would still work with students again. Uh, I, it really was a bummer to find out, you know, that specific uh, situation. But I would still work with students. I've worked with students in Inglewood uh, as a result afterwards. Um, and I continue to, to even hire uh, paid interns who are high school or college students. So it hasn't dampened my thought about students. I found that the the students are brilliant at the mm-hmm. high school level. They're I think they're smarter, more tech savvy than college students, uh, university students that are in their twenties. Um, I found that the uni- that the high school students are they're just they catch on really really quickly, and mm-hmm. and they can break things down in a way that's so simplified in, in a non technical way they'll understand it before you even explain it to them. Mm-hmm. So. For me, um, it hasn't dampened my uh, enthusiasm in working with kids, but I think we have to be cautious of technology and some of the ramifications that we might take for granted that may not have an impact on us as adults, but to younger teens Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. For whatever mm-hmm. way and whatever it is, we mm-hmm. can't explain that, it might be dangerous. Mm-hmm. And it, it might have an mm-hmm. impact that we might not know of or we might not be thinking of, even though we're trying to do good with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I hear you. And th- thanks for telling us uh, about this. I think it's, uh, it's, good, it's good food for thought for a lot of people out there. And, and how, how does this make you feel about Chicago? Well, I think Chicago is great. You know, it's just like uh, my hometown, Cleveland, is on the lake. We're on Lake Erie in uh, Cleveland. Um, Chicago, we're on Lake Michigan. The weather's almost the same. Uh, we have Lakeshore Boulevard in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. You have Lakeshore Drive here. Uh, it's a melting pot city uh, in Cleveland. There's all kind of different ethnicities. And uh, there's an east side. There's a west side, sort of like the south side and the north side. You have all of that going on. So uh, it's really almost an identical city. It's just a smaller micro version of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I love Chicago. I, can, I call Chicago my home. Um, and I, one of my sisters is actually going to move here. Hmm. Oh, <laughs> I have three good. sisters. I'm the only boy. So one of them is going to be moving here next year. Oh, well, good. Well, I hope she's listening. Um, so now 
I wanted to ask you too. You know, your your work coordinating all of these events has has been you know a long going pro- uh, project. How has it inspired others? Um, I think when people see the passion that I have, um, they get inspired to say, okay, I can learn WordPress or I can, you know, do an event. Um, you know, a lot of the events that I do are really small. They're not mm-hmm. big events. You know, I have a handful of people sometime mm-hmm. and, you know, it might, for me, 15 people is a big event to me. Mm-hmm. That's that's not even a crowd for a lot of people. If I can just get people in the conference room in my office packed, you know, just not have em- empty chairs, we could fit probably 10 to 20 people in one of our conference rooms. Mm-hmm. That's a big that's a big turnout for me. Mm-hmm. And so I would say to people that are listening, uh, if you are thinking about doing events or becoming an event organizer, you you should do it. I mean, I still do it. I've been organizing events since I started the WordPress meetup in 2008. Mm-hmm. I've had big meetups. I've had small meetups. I had meetups where only one person showed up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I still continuously do it. I just look at it in a different way and I say, well, it's not so much that I'm looking at uh, breaking even or selling out in terms of getting people to show up per se, but I just say, well, if one person shows up, Mm -hmm. if we have 10 tickets available and one person shows up, that's great Mm -hmm. because that means that I actually was successful. Radio Free chatted with the Daily Line's A.D. Quigg about Chicago and Cook County budget woes, the bid to attract Amazon, and whether or not the city is actually broke. The answer, it's complicated. Radio Free Bridgeport with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time at 4 p.m. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. This is Radio Free Bridgeport. I'm John Daly. We are joined today by A.D. Quigg. Thank you very much. Thanks for, for having me. Thanks for being here. Uh, so, A.D., you do a great job telling Chicagoans on a daily basis what's happening in city and county government at thedailyline.net. That's right. And uh, so this is a particularly interesting time, given that it is budget season. This in, is the best time of the year. In both the county and the city. Correct. City and, bud- city and county both do their budgets at the same time to torture people like me. <laughs> so I'm sure that's why they do it. We um, yeah, are very that's happy. That's pretty much it. Uh, very happy to pick your brain at a time like this because I think you... Hopefully, we'll tell listeners a little bit about what is happening in this budgetary season and uh, what they might need to know. I know on the city side, they have had uh, a number every year for the last three that has gone down by a considerable amount. It's roughly, is it $116 million this the year? The structural budget that? this year, uh, the deficit is $114 million, which they say is a historic low, but it doesn't factor in a lot of little things that are very important. Well, Jamie, hopefully that's what we'll be getting into a little bit. Yeah. So what does that mean when you say it doesn't First of all, what is what does that mean for idiots like myself who don't know anything about anything and are clueless with money? I'm sure that's not true. Um it's the difference between revenue and expenditures of the city. Okay. Um and what it doesn't factor in this year is a bunch of costs. We've got uh collective bargaining agreements, so union agreements with every single city union. Uh one of the costliest ones is going to be the police union contract which is under negotiation now, but sometimes those take years and years to negotiate. 
Uh, the city agreed to pick up $80 million in costs at Chicago Public Schools for security. Um, we've got police overtime. That's $94 million over budget. Uh, police overtime is $94 million over budget? Police overtime is $94 million over budget. How, how can police overtime be that much? It's been growing every single year for the past five years. And a lot of people say it's because we're not hiring enough cops to replace the ones that are retiring. I saw a report uh, about two days ago that was trying to encourage people to apply for the uh, the academy, the police academy. Yes, because you can make pretty good money if you're in there for long enough. I think the average is $72,000 a year if you stick in it for about 18 months. And they're trying to get a lot more diverse cops because of everything that's going on with police reform and low trust in police across communities of color in Chicago. So what are some of the other things that might be hidden fees, for lack of a better term, um, when it's suggested that the actual deficit is 116? Let's see. Well, what else are we working with? We've got, you know, pension payments, which are growing every year, Uh, even though the city council voted three years ago to continually raise the property tax in Chicago. It's going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger to pay for police and fire pensions that we put off paying in past years. So no tax hikes this year. That's important. But there are going to be a few fee hikes. What do you mean by that? No tax hikes, meaning property or? No property tax hike, no sales tax hike, no biggies. No soda tax either. Well, now, just to to back up on this, I was going to get to the soda tax in a second. How sustainable is this? Because every year... It's not sustainable. Okay. I guess that's a good way to end it. <laughs> Soda tax obviously took $200 million off the table if you if you listen to the president of Cook County. Is that blowing a hole in the, in the county budget? For sure. And there's there aren't that many easy fixes. I mean, it is very politically difficult to raise the property tax at the county because the city has raised theirs by so much. Uh, the county actually hasn't raised their property tax levy since the mid-90s. But people don't know that because when they open up the property tax bill, it says from Cook County. So they assume Cook County is the one raising all their property taxes. Really, it's the city and all these teeny tiny taxing districts like parks and libraries and mosquito abatement and stuff like that. Um, So it'd be really hard for commissioners to vote for property tax hike after the city voted to raise theirs over and over and over. Chicago Public Schools just announced they were raising theirs also, so that'll be another $177 everyone will be seeing on their property tax bill this year. Uh, Cook County also raised its sales tax not that long ago. So our rate is one of the highest in the country, it would be hard for them to raise it again. Why have we not seen more of a move then to a general progressive income tax instead of these ruinous taxes on property owners, which disproportionately uh, or seem to be disproportionately affecting people on fixed incomes who have property and own it and and have retired? Right. Well, the state did just re-raise its income tax. Um, There are some state and federal laws that would stop the city or the county from instituting its own income tax. So we need state help from that, and we've asked the state for quite a bit, and we're having a tough time getting along with Governor Rauner, unless we're talking about Amazon. So there was a state tax for, and it's some relief for the schools, is that correct? Yes. The income tax hike at the state level was to help fund schools across the state. And CPS is going to benefit from that, but it kind of plays out in the long run, and and it doesn't take care of a lot of the long-term structural issues that they also have in terms of big, big, big debt. So, Ad, you talked about the tax bills that will come up at the county. People will notice an increase uh, that likely will not um, trigger them to call and congratulate their commissioners. And, and But it's in, in all seriousness, the fact that the majority, they're simply the taxing agency, but many of the raises and, and things that the 
uh, city has done and other municipalities have done are kind of under that guise, and that that's what they're remitting back. We, in this very conversation, have pivoted from the city to the county and right. talked a little bit about the state. Um, so, it, it, you know, it seems like a lot of this not only gets confused, but um, some of the solutions have to be, for lack of a better term, streamlined. Right. Yeah, and it's it's confusing for people, and there's just a lot of the term that's been going around lately is tax fatigue, um, property taxes, sales taxes, water and sewer fees, increased fees on metro rides. I mean, people just feel tapped out. And this is compounded largely. People have been complaining and trying to illuminate some of the borrowing that's been going on between the different municipalities, uh, whether it's it's the state itself or you look at the city of Chicago and you look at their, their rating um, and what that uh, means when they go out and, and borrow $500 million for schools and pay between, you know, three, five and a half and six and a half points, whatever, right. it, whatever it goes up to as the rating goes down. Right. So just this week we had today, we had the, the state government starting to try to pay down its gigantic $16 billion bill backlog. So they're doing $6 billion worth of borrowing. Um, last week, city council passed a new borrowing authority. So it's a brand new body that will be able to borrow on behalf of the city up to $3 billion. And they're hoping that will help improve the city's rating and make borrowing a little bit cheaper in the long run. Wait, how, do, how does borrowing $3 billion improve a city's credit rating? Oh, it's confusing. <clears throat> it's a little hard to explain. So this new authority would start off with a clean slate that the city doesn't have. So the city's kind of got a junk bond rating. That makes borrowing really expensive. Ratings agencies are worried that we won't be able to pay it back. So by creating this new authority, they would start out at a better bond rating, and they would help us pay off our long-term general obligation debt. So are the bond rating agencies stupid? They don't realize that this new thing actually just represents the same old junk property? No, Jamie, we opened up a new credit card. A little bit. It's <clears throat> a little a bit LLC. like that. It's a little bit like that. Um, there's also some guarantees that people that are owed this money, the borrowers, were, will get paid back first. If okay. the city ever goes into bankruptcy, which is not possible at this point, state law has to allow the city to declare bankruptcy, and that is not state law yet. So is the city at risk of not paying back all this money we've bought, borrowed? The city would say no. Would you say, I'm not asking the city, I'm asking you. This, I'm, I would have to be neck deep in fiscal documents to give you a, a confident answer on that. But it is a, it is a long-term structural worry for the city because we're seeing costs the cost curve in after the 2019 election, not oddly enough, um, skyrockets. We're going to need to figure out a way to pay for that. Meaning the pension obligations? Yeah. And debt and just paying <clears throat> back debt. So what we owe the pensions is going up and what we have to pay back in debt is going up. And this is conveniently after the elections? Yes, conveniently. So liabilities in general are continuing to increase. We're restructuring a bit, which hopefully will help with bond rating and maybe lower the cost of money that we're borrowing. Correct. Um, but there needs to be some some serious structural right. uh, reorganization. Yeah, and part of the problem is all of these taxing districts overlap each other. Chicago's in Cook County, which has a similar problem. Chicago Public Schools have a similar problem. This whole state of Illinois has a bad rating, and everything overlapping makes us not look great to borrowers. But, I mean, everybody's a bad rating because we don't look great to borrowers. I mean, that's, I mean, I agree it's a little chicken in the it's egg. A, yeah, but it's we, we don't, chicken egg thing. We don't look good, and what is the way out of this? Well, a lot of people would say we need help from the state. We need um, structural reforms at the state to raise things like a progressive income tax, mm -hmm. uh, maybe tax more services. We need more revenue and maybe 
maybe restructuring pensions, but that can be tricky stuff that often ends up in, in court. Yeah, because, I mean, we've already had pension reform mm-hmm. slapped down as unconstitutional. We have a very strict guarantee of pensions. Right. Um, I mean, we've had Senator Biss on the show apologize. For we that. have. <laughs> Senator Biss did. And, well, I mean, also, not to put too fine a point on it, that it's not necessarily the current administration's fault either. Correct. People kicked the can down the road. They didn't raise taxes and they used the money they were taking from the pensions to pay for things right. instead of paying for the pensions. Yeah. So what the whole thing, if you're sitting on the outside and you're a, you're a moron like me, seems kind of hopeless because you, you say, well, I, I look around the city and I say, well, you know, there's a lot of people working here. There's a lot of apartments going up. There's a lot of breweries opening up in, in the city of Chicago. We look fairly prosperous, candidly, but I see our infrastructure falling apart. Our roads aren't in great shape. Our bridges aren't in great shape. Our public transport obviously needs help. Where with all the employment that is going on in the city of Chicago right now and all the energy that's being put into a, a booming tech sector, if, if we don't have the funds to deal with this right now and we're borrowing, what's, what's going to happen to us in five or six years? I mean, we're already seeing a population mm-hmm. outflow of black Chicagoans from the south side who are either leaving the county or leaving the state. Right. Um, so there is a problem creating opportunity for people, middle and low income people, to stay in the city. We're seeing a big uptick in corporate relocations. The city's trying to attract Amazon to come here, um, hope to attract more business, bring more tax revenue. I mean, it's not ever an easy solution. I don't think there are any easy fixes. I think Governor Rounder would like to see us uh, become a more attractive site for big companies to relocate and create more jobs, but it's tough. The Lump in Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lump in Theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lump in Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lump in Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Yeah.